0: Well, we left Paul and Barnabas last week in Acts chapter 14 on their way back home, back to Antioch in Syria, their home base. And when they arrived there, they gathered the church together and they declared how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's a kind of epochal moment in the history of redemption. And while they were there with these disciples at Antioch, bringing them up to to date on their missionary journey, a controversy arises. And this controversy leads to the convening of the First Church Council, the First General Assembly, if you will, summarized for us in Acts chapter 15, which we will, Lord willing, look at in two sermons, the first of which will be this morning. This morning we'll make two points, which are there on the outline in your bulletin on page 5, the controversy and Peter. So the controversy itself, and then Peter's contribution to the debate. So first, the controversy. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. We're told here, some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers. And here's what they taught. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now... I mean, it's important to remember what we've seen already in the narrative in the book of Acts. Because it shows us just how stark and how significant this claim about circumcision is. The message of salvation, as Paul called it when he preached in the synagogue in Antioch back in chapter 13, concerning Jesus the message of salvation concerning Jesus is addressed to Jews and Gentiles. And we've seen this, right? Both groups are called to respond the same way. They are to repent, and they are to believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah or the promised Savior. That's it. That's what the apostolic preaching summons the hearer to. Repentance and faith. And on that basis... Right? Both Jews and Gentiles are offered salvation, the forgiveness of sins, justification, legal acquittal, eternal life. And now a group of men show up and they say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So notice this, right? Circumcision is a salvation issue for them. You know, They're not saying, look, this is a, this is a delightful... Ethnic, Jewish custom, I think we should keep it for cultural reasons. That's not what they're doing. Salvation is absolutely necessary. Without it, you cannot be saved. And we're told in the text that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. No small dissension and debate with them. Which you can read into that, which you you will, but that indicates that this was a pretty heated conversation. Paul, we know, can be fierce when he thinks the gospel's at stake. And it's at stake here. So what happens is the church up there in Antioch, this is Antioch in Syria, they appoint Paul and Barnabas and some others, some delegates basically, to go down to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So notice what they do is they convene a council. This is a wise and judicious thing to do for lots of reasons. Right? For one thing, in many counselors there's safety. And if there's one church, right? If there's one church, you don't want one church in Antioch believing something about circumcision and another church in Jerusalem believing something different. If there's one church, she should seek public doctrinal unity and peace in the truth. It's a tall order. And if she's going to do that, then she should assemble her teachers and the relevant other people to come together and to deliberate. And in this case, of course, it's wise to go to Jerusalem. The apostles are there. Right? That's the mother church of Christendom. Now, there are also elders there, we're told. It's not just the apostles. There's elders. I mean, the Jerusalem church by this point is almost certainly a network of house churches. It's a collection of churches. And so the church has been doing just this ever since this council. And by the way, this council here in Acts 15, it dates to about 48 or 49 A.D. So this is very early. All right, we have a whole chapter in our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, called of synods and councils. That's how important this is to our conception of the faith. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, paragraph 2, says this. It belongs to synods and councils, ministerially, which means under the word, without, you know, without coercive force. These synods cannot use any coercive bodily force, but ministerially, by the power of the word. It belongs to them, it says, to determine. Not to weigh in, but to determine controversies of faith. And cases of conscience. And our confession goes on to list numerous other matters which are proper for handling by synods, synods or councils. And if you look at the confession there, they have proof texts. And the proof text at this point in the confession is Acts chapter 15. So this is a very significant text, important text for Presbyterians. Not only Presbyterians, we would say, but for us, it's particularly important. The local church in Antioch does not view itself as sufficient to handle all matters. That's a really important thing to get here. The local church doesn't think, oh, we'll figure it out. We'll get our guys together. They feel that the people in Antioch have a right to appeal. Now, they appeal to the Jerusalem church To the apostles, but notice, not just to the apostles, to the elders there. And they send delegates. And you're going to see something else as we go on, Lord willing, in the future in the book of Acts. This council decides on this controversy, and then they send a letter. And they carry it around, not just to the churches involved in the controversy, but to all the churches that Paul goes to. So the churches where this controversy didn't arise were bound by the decision of the Jerusalem church. So there's a, a broader kind of connectionalism being taught here. So these men come down from Syria. They get to Jerusalem. They're welcomed by the church there. They declare everything God has done. And then verse 5 says, so there's some more controversy to come here. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. But the good news is the Pharisees were becoming believers. The bad news is They're garbled on the glorious liberty of the gospel. So they rise up and they said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I mean, after all, this is what God's covenant people have been doing for thousands of years. The other position, the one everybody in this room probably holds, right? The one Paul and Barnabas hold, that's the novel position. At least it appears to be so. It's necessary to do this, they have to keep the law of Moses. Notice, it's not, it's not merely circumcision. It's circumcision and keeping the Torah. It's a, it's a package deal. And here, we have to remember that circumcision is a covenant sign which points to and requires a circumcised heart. It's not like you can detach circumcision from keeping the Torah. Circumcision is the sign that you're obligating yourself to keep the Torah, to keep the terms of the covenant. So about this then, about this controversy, the council in Jerusalem, the first council of the church, is convened in 48 or 49 AD. So our second point then is to look at Peter's contribution here. So again, Acts 15 verse 7 tells us again, after there had been much debate. So, you know, debate, vigorous debate, if it's about the highest things and not about second-order things or petty things, if it's about the highest things, it's not a bad thing. In fact, if it's done in an orderly manner under proper authority as here, it's the way to deeper clarity. Right? Iron sharpens iron. It's the way to refute error. It's a terrible thing to be left alone with your own thoughts. As a church or as a people, we need vigorous debate about the highest things. In other words, synods are ultimately about the defense of the flock. They are about the truth. They're not about defending our position. They're about getting to the truth with the rest of the saints. So after much debate, Peter stands up and he addresses the assembly. It's a great act of decorum, I think, and humility on Peter's part. Because Peter is the apostle who first opened the gospel up to the Gentiles... In many ways, he's the first among equals. He's a preeminent apostle. He could have short-circuited things, right? He, knew, he knows what he's about to say before the debate even starts. But he lets the debate run its course, and then he stands up. And he says, brothers, you know. So this is something everybody knows. He's not speculating. Brothers, you know. You know that in the early days, we're well, in the early days, but he means even earlier, you know, back in the 30s. In the early days, you know, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's reminding them, I received this vision. I was sent to Cornelius' house. We read all of this. We saw this back in Acts chapter 10. And he continues, God who knows the heart bore witness to those Gentiles. You'll remember, even before there was a verbal confession of faith in Acts 10, while Peter was speaking... God who knew their hearts showed his divine approval by pouring the Holy Spirit out on the Gentiles, he says, just as he did to us. In other words, there was a Gentile Pentecost in Acts 10, just like there was a Pentecost on gathered Jews in Acts 2. So think about this, the implications of this for the unity of the church. There are all sorts of... um, Systems of thinking in Christendom, which end up with either two plans or two tracks or two tiers or two of something between God and His plan for the Gentiles and His plan for Israel. They want to slice this and dice this up in some sort of way. But think of the implications of the gift of the Spirit for the unity of the church against any conception that there are two kinds or two tracks of Christians. They're enormous. The Jews received the Spirit at Pentecost, and God gave the same Spirit to the Gentiles. Why is this so significant? Well, because the Spirit is God. The gift of the Spirit is the gift of God himself. It's the gift of God's own life. It means we are brought by it into communion with the Holy Trinity, One of our hymns calls the gift of the Spirit the best of all donations. God can give or man implore. The the Father who gave the Son with the Son, through the Son, gives the Spirit. So here's the question, right? What could Gentiles possibly lack? They have the triune God indwelling them through the Messiah's mediation. Peter says, they got the same spirit we got. So they are with their Jewish brethren, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, can there be any hierarchy or second class citizens in the body of Christ. Can there be any separate but equal arrangements? They receive, Peter says, the Holy Spirit just as we did. Listen to what Paul can say later to a Gentile church in Corinth, a Gentile city. He says this, All things are yours, whether Paul or Apostle or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future or... All things are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's earth-shattering stuff. This is what it means for you, Gentiles, to possess all that God promised. Because in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yea and amen. A simple way to put this is, if you possess Christ, you possess everything. If you possess Christ, you possess everything. So God gave them, those Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, Peter says, just as he gave it to the Jews. And he continues, now listen to how radical this is. Maybe not to us, but I'll I'll address that in a minute. And, Peter continues, he made no distinction between us and them. I hope you are hearing the glory of the gospel in this stuff the whole history of Israel is predicated in many ways on distinctions, right? Laws and distinctions between Israel and the nations, between Jew and Gentile, between clean and unclean, between who has sanctuary access and who doesn't have sanctuary access. Gentiles were welcomed sometimes, but it was generally assumed that they'd have to become Jews. They'd get circumcised. They'd keep the Torah. One thing is certain, everywhere you looked, There were distinctions. The Gentiles were unclean. And then God gives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the highest gift. Higher than the land. Higher than the temple. Higher than the Torah. It is the divine gift before the Gentiles even asked for it. Before they even profess faith. That's God himself through the Spirit making no distinction. No church-relevant distinction. No distinction in the realm of salvation. No distinction in the realm of piety or inheritance or communion with God. No distinction between them and us. So, verse 9 continues. He made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You know what this means? This means that you are no longer unclean. You no longer lack some sort of priestly qualification for worshiping the God of Israel in the highest and holiest places. these These cleanness laws, which were meant to separate Israel from the nations, are broken down. You've been purified not only ceremonially, but in the deeper moral cleansing of the heart, and now you have access to God, who himself dwells in you. Paul puts it this way in the book of Ephesians. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So these distinctions, these separations, this Gentile existence Is perilous. It's not a fiction, Paul says. You really were outside of Christ and outside of God, with no hope, with no access to the covenants, separated from the commonwealth of Israel. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? So, Paul says, you're no longer strangers, you're no longer aliens. Your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. How glorious is that? You are a member of Christ and thus a member of the household of God. You're a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel, a partaker of the covenant, none of which we had any natural right to. Now, therefore, Peter says in verse 10, and here he's addressing the Pharisee party directly. He's he's addressing them directly. He says, Why are you putting God to the test and placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What a damning indictment that is. Think about this, right? Why are you putting God to the test? It's almost satanic, right? Satan tests Jesus, wants Jesus to put God to the test. This insistence on circumcision and keeping the Mosaic law is not a minor error. It's a provocation of God himself. It consists of placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, Peter says, on trying to bring Gentile Christians into bondage. It consists of mixing the law with the grace of the gospel, and that is poison. And we have this problem perennially in the church, by the way, where people always want to mix the law with the grace of the gospel. Grace plus some law, when it comes to salvation, eviscerates grace. You're saved by grace, you're sanctified by grace, you're adopted by grace, you're brought all the way home by grace. Jesus excoriates the Pharisees for the yoke they laid even on their fellow Jews. We heard it in the gospel lesson from Matthew 23. And these Pharisees here in our text, though they are believers now, they're still clinging to these old ways, right? They they haven't fully embraced the the new wine and the new wineskins in the gift of the Spirit. And remember that passage in the gospel. Jesus talks about this yoke that the Pharisees lay on people. And they don't lift a finger to help anybody carry the burden. But he says, come to me. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Taking the yoke of Jesus on you brings rest to your soul. He's not flooding you with a collection of rules, a labyrinth of laws for you to figure out. And thus, he summons in his gentleness weary people, heavy laden people, law-burdened people, conscience-burdened people to come to him and take up his yoke. But here, this yoke is being placed on the neck of disciples. And it's a yoke. Now listen to these. It's one remarkable phrase after another from Peter here. Listen to these words. He says, it's a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Right? I assume that there are people there who, think, who are thinking among the Pharisee party, I do pretty good with the law. You know, maybe not a hundred, but you know, I get nine out of ten. I get, I do, you know, people think they do pretty well on this stuff. Peter says the yoke of the Torah is a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. One can imagine how this sat with the Pharisees. Like Peter is saying, we historically as a people, it's a 1,400-year experiment. We have perpetually broken the law. Have you not read the prophets? We've been sent into exile precisely because of our law-breaking. Our nation rejected and was implicated in the killing of the Messiah precisely because we did not uphold the law. Circumcision... And its consequent obligation to keep the law is not a burden we Jews have been able to bear. Here the argument digs down deep. Paul will say to the Judaizers in Galatians, Galatians 5, he says, Look, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, Paul says, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Right? You want to get Paul worked up, just, just touch this. Just say, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ, but, it's, you know what Paul says right there? There's no but there. You have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He knows, as Peter did in our text, that the fathers, the Jewish people in general, have been unable to bear the yoke of circumcision and law-keeping. So what is happening in this text may not seem at first to maybe to touch down in our lives, but it's just because this council and its effects have been so successful that we don't even notice or think about it. the fact that you're all sitting here this morning saying some of you probably saying yeah, 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 we know that is because this council has been so successful in the history of the church what is happening here is your freedom from Jewish ritual and law in general is being fought for so that you might have the gospel in all of its unadorned simplicity in all of its gracious gloriousness Peter is lifting a yoke off your neck by the way Christian teachers have marvelous ways of putting that yoke back on your neck. We We have very clever ways of doing this. Yes, you're saved by grace, but only initially. After that, yes, and God's grace will help you here, but you have to do this, and you have to do that, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. And if you don't do this, and you don't do that right, then God won't bless us. And usually it ends up with something like, and therefore we won't be able to change the culture. And the next thing you know, you're under a pile of new legislation Right, And you're like, oh, this seems, this seems burdensome. Who can do this? So Peter's lifting this yoke from our necks. It's for this freedom that Christ has set you free. Now there's a whole bunch of whatabouts. What about good deeds and all that? Yes, fine. Our confession says they're the fruit and evidence of faith. They are never the ground of your acceptance with God. If they were, none of us would be accepted. So Paul puts it, in again, this is when Paul preached in the synagogue. In chapter 13, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience here. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So as an aside... And this pushes this argument even further. We can see how radical it is. As an aside, let me point out the argument entails that circumcision and keeping the law of Moses for any kind of religious reason or for any contribution to salvation are not required even of Jewish believers. After all, we've already had that experiment, Peter says. It's a yoke we cannot bear. Neither How about this from Paul? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul doesn't say, look, if you're a Jewish believer, try and keep the Torah the best you can, get your kids circumcised, and you Gentiles don't have to worry about it. That's the way sometimes people interpret Acts 15, by the way. But that's not what's going on. Paul says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. And in Philippians 3... You know that famous passage where he lists out, you know, I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm, I was circumcised on the eighth day, and I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He lists out all of his Jewish accomplishments, all of his Jewish heritage, and he gets to the end and he says he counts them as worthless dung. He pours contempt on his circumcision in light of the excessive glory that has appeared in Jesus Christ. So rather than the yoke of Moses. Peter says this in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. There's no mixture. We're either saved by grace alone or we're not saved at all. And notice this. There's a little shocking reversal in Peter's statement. You'd expect him to say this, that the Gentiles will be saved by grace just as we Jews were. After all, he said, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he gave it to us Jews. But he doesn't say that here. He says, we Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. It's a statement of sheer identity. Our salvation is like their salvation. Their salvation is like our salvation. So that's Peter's remarkable short summary speech at the Jerusalem Council. And all of the liberty and the fresh, clean air of the gospel that you breathe depends on the success of this speech. It's good news for us. So basic that we don't even think about it. Even if you've never been personally under the yoke of the law of Moses, right? this liberation is still wrought for you. Because I said, we have ways of reconstructing this yoke. And we all know the yoke of our own breaking of God's law, the yoke of our own consciences, the yoke of our own guilt, the yoke of our own deeply flawed obedience, right? the yoke of our perpetual law making and rule making in addition to the gospel, to which we're all subject because we're inveterate sons of Adam who think we can be saved by our own obedience. So here is the good news. God saves sinners, Gentile sinners, making them one with his people, his household. And he gives. He gives you the Holy Spirit and cleanses your heart by faith. Verse 9 highlights this faith. And then in verse 11, it says, we're saved by, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus is his favor, right? We often say grace is undeserved favor, of God to us but it's more glorious than that really it's not just that we don't deserve the favor we have positively merited wrath and judgment it's demerited favor it's demerited favor it's favor in the face of demerit this is what it means to say we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and if you put all this together it means you're saved by grace through faith apart from law and there is nothing, there's no news, not just initially, all the way. There's no news better than that news. No news better than that. You're saved by grace through faith, apart from law keeping. So we should not let this joyous news ever get old. But we have to refresh ourselves in it. The Christian life starts, it breathes, it lives, it draws its vigor, and it draws its gladness from this fountain. By grace alone we are saved. In grace alone we stand. And by grace alone you are being made into the image of Christ. And by grace alone you shall be led home. Amen. Amen.